I'll always tell it like it is. That's the bottom line. If you just living to exist, you want borrowed time. Don't ever let them take your soul. No, no, no. Don't ever let them take your soul. No, no, no. I'll always tell it like it is. That's the bottom line. If you just living to exist, you want borrowed time. Don't ever let them take your soul. No, no, no. Don't ever let them take your soul. No, no, no. That's the bottom line. Hey guys, Jim Wahlberg here. We're back with the bottom line. And uh, wow, lots been going on in the world since the last time we were with you. Um, and I don't really want to get into all of that, right? What I want to get into is um, the blessing of recovery and the blessing of life itself, right? We, we are alive, we're upright, we're taking air. As, uh, as Charlie Sheehan would say, we're winning, right? Um, considering all that we've been through, um, many of the folks that watch this show. Um, so what I want to do today is a little different than anything we've ever done before. Uh, I'm really going to hold back a little bit on the introduction of my guest today, other than to just tell you his name, because maybe you don't know his name yet, but I assure you that you will know his name very well soon. Um, Benjamin Lerner is, um, is a guy that, you know, I, he was brought to my attention by some folks in, in Los Angeles. A friend of mine is a publicist, and a friend of his is a publicist, and uh, they connected with each other and uh, because of this podcast and because of the nature of our guests' work, um, they thought we would, it would be good for us to get together. And we did that, and uh, instant connection for me. Um, and I'll let him tell you whether it was an instant connection for him. That's really up to him. Um, but what I want to do is I'm going to start this show the way we've never started the, uh, the show before, with a little bit of music from our, from our guest, Benjamin Lerner. Feeling like my soul's missing, skin crawling, bones itching, legs shaking, and my toes twitching. Sweating bullets and it's cold dripping. Feels like it's been about three, four days every three, four minutes. Feeling drained and my eyes heavy, but my heart is racing. I'm beyond restless. Stomach's turning every five seconds. Time stands still, mind can't chill even for a minute. Nerve and it's coming back to life. Tell you how it feel. Every sense at once, coming back from numb. Heart beating fast, pounding like a drum. Finally feel like I ain't gotta run. I accept my fate, take it as it comes. Sensitive to light, eyes tearing up, sneezing like I got an allergy to dust. Doubled over like I'm limping with a crutch. Seconds turn to hours, hours turn to months. I ain't eating none. Breakfast, dinner, lunch, skipping everyone. Barely even slept, feeling faint and light. I feel short of breath, coming back to life, feeling like. I'm dead, feeling like a mile every step, onward though I pressed, nothing left, I lost everything I never thought I'd lose, everything to gain, everything to prove, I feel like I'm lost and exhausted, 
disoriented and confused Guess I finally gotta pay the cost and satisfy my debts and settle all my dues Taking every ounce of strength I have to get up out the bed Get across the room, flip the lights, splash some water on my face This is something that I never thought I'd do I still feel afraid, but I feel the weight Shifting off my shoulders, now I start to face Every single doubt, every single fear Finally aware, everything is clear here and now, seeing how weakness now turns into strength. Voices in my head speak aloud, I ain't listening to them. Broken down, but I know I got a chance to build it up again. This my chance at a new beginning, I'm deciding how it ends. Pain motivates, ain't gonna wait, ain't no debate, make no mistake. Gas never breaks, can't hesitate. Present, future, and the past separate. Lonely and I'm cold, sober and alone. Far away from home and everything I know. I'ma take the way I feel right now, remember it, and I'ma never let it go. I'ma never let it go. I'ma never let it go I'ma never let it go Wow Wow, that was beautiful, man <laughs> Oh, boy um, Benjamin So I don't want to waste a lot of time Right? Because I really want to get into, uh, I want to I learn as much as I can about you and sort of how you end up in this place at this time with me, right? Um, I know a little bit about you. I've done a little bit of research and, and your people, Jeff was kind enough to provide me with information. But until he sent me music, right, I was just like, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, whatever, right? He, he's the great, great grandson of so-and-so and this and that. And I was like, oh, those are, all, those are all great things, but that doesn't make me connect with somebody, right? What makes me connect with somebody is knowing sort of the pain that they survived and, and how I identify with that. And, um, and he told me some really interesting things. And one of the interesting things that makes you sort of so unique to me is that not who you're related to, but your talent, right? You are a child prodigy, right? You're a classical pianist, right? So when I think of that, I think that I, I, I kind of think, wow, you probably had a, a pretty good life. Just to be able to own a piano is, it's, you know, the average family doesn't, they don't have the funds to own a piano, right? Um, so you're, you're living a really nice life. You've you're, you're, you got talent, beyond measure, right? Because when they call you a child prodigy, they don't say, hey, that's a kid that can play the piano. Child prodigy is someone that stands apart from most other um, musicians. And, um, and so you're, that's your life. And then I listen to your songs and I hear the pain and the devastation and the, the loss and the struggles and, and the beauty of recovery. But so what I want to do is I just want to turn it over to you. I want you to tell me what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. Absolutely. Well, I'll start off by saying it's a blessing to be here. It's a blessing to be alive, and it's a blessing to be sober. Because before I ever start talking, I have to ground myself in the here and now. And by doing that, I can never be complacent about going back 
and ever return into that past. And I need to be rooted in that understanding that every day is a blessing. And I'll start off by saying I was an addict and an alcoholic before I ever took my first drink. And what that means is I was chasing instant gratification in every single form it came in. You know, before I realized that I could change consciousness chemically, I was augmenting my consciousness with the approval of people from around me. Like you say, I was born into a family of privilege. I'm, I am Irving Berlin's great grandson. I'm also, you know, the grandson of some syndicated columnists for like, you know, publications like the New York Post. Um, you know, different writers, stuff like that. It's a big words and music tradition in my family. It's not about the names. It's not about the publications. It's about the fact that growing up, there was a legacy more than money of intellectualism and kind of the same way, you know, like you go, you know, maybe in like rural mass, like Lynn Lowell, place like that. There could be like, you know, a star quarterback or something and like, or, you know, maybe some like musician and like they grow up and it's that expectation. Maybe their dad was on the football team or maybe their dad's a lawyer or a doctor. And for me, it was like my parents didn't really care if I was a lawyer or a doctor. They cared about my intellectual curiosity and they were wonderful people. You know, they were um, a little bit of a history of addiction there. My mother, full disclosure, is also in the same anonymous sobriety fellowship as I am. Um, but they gave me everything that I could have wanted. But there was always a little expectation that I had to perform. And that kind of relates to the opening title track of my album, actually, because the album's structured to tell the story of my life. And in the opening track, Performer, the first line is, and I might change a word or two, uh, I'm a performer, the world is a stage, every conversation that I have and every word that I say is pre-rehearsed inside my mind as I purposefully try to get approval from outside, it's an absurd little game. So when I was a little kid, I was addicted to the approval I would get from playing that piano. And my dad was a Harvard-educated hippie. He'd take me to these dinner parties, right? And he'd like pre-rehearse with me. He'd give me a Das Kapital, which is this like, you know, crazy uh, socialist textbook. He's one of those like hippie guys, you know what I mean? Like Harvard hippie, late 60s. And, and I'm 10 years old, right? My friends are playing Xbox and GameCube. And he's like trying to indoctrinate me in this stuff. And I, and, and I liked it. It was, it, was, it was a high in itself. But I would put me in front of these people who he we went to these prestigious schools with and kind of be like, I don't want to say dance, monkey, dance, but like, you know, just perform. You know what I mean? And whenever I would get validation from people saying, wow, he's so young, but he can play piano. Wow, he's so young, but he's so articulate. It was a buzz for me. And it was this little piece of endorphin, this little piece of dopamine. And I chased it before I ever had my first drink when I was about 13 or 14. And I'll never forget that either. It was this disgusting, cobwebbed, out-of-the-refrigerator six-pack. But when I drank it, I didn't hate myself anymore. I didn't feel that pressure to perform. I was all right. And it was poison, and I could taste it. Like, I was physically repulsed by it. But it was just this ambrosial bliss and this ability to detach from the voices in my head saying it wasn't, I wasn't good enough. It, meaning everything around me wasn't good enough. That all just fell by the wayside. And I chased it for years to come. And I grew up in Washington, D.C., you know, the home of power, the home of, uh, you know, uh, pride and fear and ambition and all these kind of Dickensian, really intense fears. And my fear was that I wasn't as good as the people around me because I was born into privilege, but I'm talking, you know, senators, kids, billionaires, the owner of baseball teams. I'm going to school with these guys. 
they're going off vacationing in Martha's Vineyard and they wear these like, you know, polo shirts with these little logos. And, you know, I could put the shirt on. I could put the little alligator shirt on, but I wasn't one of them. I wasn't a preppy like DC, like, you know, uh, Senator's son. I was from a creative family and I didn't play sports. I didn't do nothing like that. I played piano. And I was born with Asperger's syndrome, at least diagnosed with it. You know, it's a continuum, it's a spectrum, but I never was good at looking people in the eye. And I always felt an inherent sense of discomfort. But these drugs and this alcohol, because in the beginning, it wasn't the hard stuff. It was a long downward spiral. It made me feel comfortable within myself. And, and I saw it as a status symbol. I hate to say it. I hate to glorify it, but I got to be real. Growing up, like, you know, it was a little bit of the positive hip hop culture, you know, same time I started playing piano, I got infatuated with hip-hop. It was a long-term love, but I was infatuated with it at the time. I was absorbing it like Eminem, uh, you know, uh, the whole 90s biggie, like, you know, a little bit of Rakim, a little bit of Cool J, a little bit of, you know, that stuff. But, you know, it was more the 90s kind of golden age, like Gangsta Poets, Big L, Biggie, AZ, Nas, and like all that. And that segued into the 2000s culture, the Dirty South, the 3-6 Mafia, and I would put one of those like future Gucci Man or Jeezy songs on and I would get in this little suburban Scarface fantasy, right? Where I'm stealing money out of my mom's purse to go buy a fifth of Hennessy or something and like some weed. And I'm thinking I'm the cast pajamas, man. I'm walking in the party like with all this and I feel like an aging businessman would feel about a mansion or a BMW. It's a material extension of my worth. It's not just I'm changing consciousness and forgetting myself. I'm elevating my status within this, within this social circle. That, to be honest, I love the kids. They're great people, but I really don't belong in. But I'm chameleoning myself by dumbing myself down with these substances, numbing myself till I'm the quote Pink Floyd comfortably numb, and then augmenting my status because I can't put on a polo shirt and be one of them. It's just like I really want to be. But I can buy, you know, some liquor and some weed and be that guy. And so the consequences started out pretty suburban, you know? I'd go to a party and I'd be hungover. I'd miss a piano judging. I'd fail a test. But as I kept going, it got realer and realer. Got to the point where, you know, I went to college. I dropped out of college because, you know, I'm an aspiring rapper. I get into school that my parents pay for, full ride. University of Miami. I get accepted into two majors by the skin of my teeth because I'm failing out of my school. But I get in. Because I pull it together. Because us addicts are good at that. At least for me. I'm not going to speak for you no one else. But for me, I know how to dodge consequences. I know how to manipulate the system. And I know how to keep it going so I can still get drunk and get high regardless of how badly my life is going. But I drop out of school and I forego all that stuff to work on my rap album. And it was some really cool times. Met some cool people in the industry, you know. I worked with the late, great Mac Miller. That was really cool. Rest in peace. Uh, I got to see how it works. And, um... You know, I got caught up in that stuff uh, pretty early in terms of the consequences after it started snowballing from when I dropped out of school. I got a DUI. I don't want to speak about drug logs or jails too much or anything like that because, you know, everyone's got a different experience. But for me, what I will say is when I got arrested for what I did get arrested for, I didn't do long time. You ain't going to see a cobweb tattoo on it. I'm not going to claim any of that. You know, I'm not. I know. I know that's part of some people's stories, including your own, if I'm not mistaken. I'm not going to claim that. But what I am going to claim is that in that ride back, before my, you know, privileged family bailed me out of that station for my DUI, I wasn't worried about them. I wasn't worried about the people I could have hurt because it was an accident. I hit other cars and thank God no one was hurt but me. But I wasn't even really hurt that bad. 
But I was thinking, oh my God, I'm not going to be able to drink today. I'm not going to be able to use today. I didn't care about anybody else. And I did what, you know, in the program we refer to as a geographic. I went to California because I had some friends out there. And my dad had relocated there because my parents got divorced when I was seven. He remarried. He was out in San Francisco. I came from D.C., left the East Coast. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to grow my hair out. I'm going to stop drinking because, you know, like one substance to another. I'm going to just smoke. I'm going to go out to Cali, grow my hair out, do my little, you know. You know, I'd always loved Nirvana, too, and the whole grunge thing. So I was like, you know, I'm just going to be that guy. But there were still certain lines in my head, my ego, that I didn't want to cross because I was a suburban drug addict. I was an uptown pothead. I was like a high level, low bottom alcoholic, you know? And I had these illusions in my head and it was like a slow desensitization because I would justify my consequences getting worse because the people I was rolling with, their consequences were getting worse too. So I go out to California, and this is the peak of the opioid epidemic, two years after Purdue changes the formula. And um, I had my wisdom teeth all come in at the same time. And the one line I said I'd never cross was pharmaceuticals. I was too good for it. But when you get your wisdom teeth taken out, my, you can't, you can't, it's not even, you can't even smoke, you can't even drink anything through a straw. The like, act of like, through your mouth, you can't do it. It'll, it'll pull the sockets out of the, out of the, out of the clots. And so I walk into my dental appointment with a raw rolling papers t-shirt on. And the dentist says, you can't smoke. And I looked at him like he told me I couldn't drink water. You're telling me I can't drink because my DUI can't smoke. I need to be able to chemically change consciousness. I need to be able to run from these demons in my head. So he gives me another solution. And it came in a bottle this time, not a bag. A little pill bottle. And um, he gave me a little too much of it. And right down from my student apartment... When I had gone to my geographic, there was an open-air drug market four blocks away. Peak of the opioid epidemic, I bet you already know the rest of the story. They didn't have little, you know, tiny little milligram pills down there. They had the real deal. And that's when stuff got really real. That's when I started, you know, it wasn't missing a class. It was pawning everything I owned. It was going days without eating because I'd rather have a pill. It was going, it was going, to, it was going to class dope sick and falling asleep because, like, I didn't have enough, you know, like, Coke or dope to keep me going. And then there was still, but it wasn't dope. You know, I, I call any type of drug dope. But you know, the real thing, that was the last line I swore I wasn't going to cross. Stimulants, pills, fine. That's all, all my friends are doing them now too. You know how it goes. But um, the big H, I wasn't going to cross that line. And I don't really, again, not too many drug logs, but there's too many people dying. There's too many people dying in this opioid epidemic. I got to talk about it. Because it was real slow and it was real gradual but one day I was just like I'm comfortable crossing this line now and I'll never forget the suburban Scarface fantasy driving up to Baltimore because I'm a DC boy and I'm back in DC because you know I'm not going to school I, I care about drugs now that's my school I'm at the, I'm at the university of you know getting high and uh, burning bridges and so I'm up there and I'm doing things I never ever thought I was doing I come from private school I come from Queen Mary 2 cruise ship trips I come from intellectual discussions with Harvard graduates when I'm 10 years old about Das Kapital and Karl Marx. And here I am, walking around getting scrambled caps in Baltimore at 3 a.m., just trying to get right, trying to steal something, trying to screw over one of my friends, my family, I don't care. Army crawling at 4 a.m., trying to steal money out of my mom's purse. Doesn't matter to me, I'll do anything. Because I don't want to be sick. I don't want to feel empty inside. 
and my family sends me to rehab the first time, but I don't care. I just manipulated again. To me, I got off on the fact that I went to a rehab that Chris Farley went to, and I stayed in the Chris Farley suite. And I was like, yeah, that's the status. I'm, I'm staying in Chris Farley's room. Look at me. Um, and I got out, and I was so determined to be able to prove everyone wrong and use the right way. But the problem is, see, I was able to control it. But the problem is that because I was able to control it, I would justify using in a more exaggerated pattern. So I really wasn't able to control it. I would celebrate being able to control my use by not controlling it. And so I got in this use pattern that was worse than it ever was before, ways I never thought I'd use, IV, free base, all that. And four years after the first time in rehab, in and out of outpatients, to boxing, whole nine yards, stealing God knows how much money from my family, burning, my friends can't even look at me. And I'm out in San Francisco, convincing my family I'm at school and I'm really just registering for classes, <laughs> doing the private school boy hustle, registering for classes, getting the money taken back in my account by withdrawing, gaming the system, gaming my family. And I'm out in the Tenderloin in San Francisco with tracks all over my arms, nothing but sadness, resentment, hate in my heart, holes in my socks that I haven't washed for 10 days. I got a scraggly beard, blood-soaked sweatshirt. And I still thought I was doing all right. And I have been to the program. And I thought, you know, I'm too unique for this. I'm too good for this. This is great for them. It's great for my mom. She was sober. She was trying to get me there. But I was like, I'm too smart. I'm too, I'm too messed up. I'm wound too tight. These people aren't artists. These people aren't intellectuals like me. These people can work a simple program. I, I resented the program because I didn't think it would work for me. But then one day it just stopped working. My solution, which was killing me, stopped working. I was at this motel room up in New York and I addressed this on a song called Broken. And there's a three song, and I played the last one just now. It's Alive When I Die. It talks about the moments down in San Francisco, you know, broken and beaten down. But there's this moment when I flew back to the East Coast and I was using with my friend in New York, who's also clean and sober. It's a beautiful thing. We were in the seedy motel room, and, you know, I loaded up, I did my thing, and it didn't take me where I needed to go. Those feelings of doubt and insecurity and sadness and just that kind of existential malaise and just feeling of uh, bursting out of your own skin. No amount of dope could touch it. I got high. How can you not with that number of you know, drugs in your system, that amount of narcotics? But I didn't get spiritually high. And I got really scared. Because for the first time since I had started augmenting my consciousness to deal with my problems, my solution didn't work. And I knew I had three options. I could try to keep going keep using, hoping that, you know, I would either OD or, you know, find a right way to keep going, find a new drug. I had exhausted all the drugs. I had done everything. There's nowhere to go. Then it was like, you know, I can intentionally OD, end it all. And then there was a third tiny little voice that said, maybe, just maybe, you're wrong about this. Maybe the program can work for you. I didn't think it was. I was getting high when I was calling the treatment center. But I called him because I was ready. And I went there and I made a lot of mistakes. I got involved in relationships early, but I didn't pick up. I missed, 
outpatient rehab days because I didn't have money to make the bus because my, you know, wealthy, privileged family, they cut me off and thank God they did. They paid for my sober house and I'm grateful for that. And I am so grateful for all of the programs that pay for people to receive employment training, to receive sober housing and to receive aftercare. Because if there's one thing I'm passionate about more than anything, it's that rehab doesn't end at the rehab center. And through the sobriety fellowships and through just the good works of addicts everywhere, whether you come from privilege or whether you come from nothing, the ultimate privilege is having that human connection. And for me, that came from my family. It came from my IOP. It came from the rules of my rooms of my sobriety fellowship. And you know, I got someone, I'm not going to use the keyword because I want to give the fellowship away. I got someone I work with on my spiritual program. And day by day, I came to realize that the same way I had been chasing instant gratification, I could chase long-term gratification and I could chase the sustainable, I'm not going to say high, I'm going to say clarity. That sustainable clarity and that sustainable ability to be okay with discomfort. To be comfortable with discomfort and, not, and instead of running from it, run towards it. Because my epiphany wasn't that everything was going to be okay and I was never going to want to use again. My epiphany was, I had a brilliant person tell me this wonderful quote one time when I was crying, when I was doing a certain you know, spiritual step in my anonymous fellowship program that had to do with, you know, taking down everything that I resented about myself and others. And all I, I wanted to blame everyone. I wanted to tear it all down. I wanted to relapse. I even, I even called my dealer that day when I was six months in. I'm not going to lie. And he said, Ben, emotions are like gasoline. You can either pour them on yourself or everyone around you, light a match and go out in a blaze of glory thinking you're justified. Or you can concentrate them. You can put it towards positive actions. And you can fuel a rocket ship to the moon. The Choice is yours. And I'm here to tell you that I believe in you. And I think you'd be one sweet rocket ship to watch. And having that person believe in me, no similar background to mine, but a stranger other than our connection through our recovery. And sitting in that room, giving this dude a hug, and just knowing that someone accepted me and someone was willing to give me a second chance, even with all my flaws. I started taking chances. I started looking people in the eye. I started going into work. I started going back to the uh, treatment center that had given me a new chance at life, the IOP, and working as a peer counselor. And just, you know, I can talk about the cash and prizes, the respect of my family, you know, the, the, the connections I've gained back, you know, the fact I was able to connect with, you know, Dr. Joshua Sherman up here at Old Mill Road recording and, you know, work on this incredible album and, you know, combine my love for classical piano and hip hop. But the ultimate, you know, point of all of this is that I learned that my struggle and the very thing I was running from was the ultimate thing that ended up saving me. And that's my tendency to want to find something to hide because when I look down at my scars and when I look down within myself, I don't want anybody to see me. But as long as I can recognize that that's happening and put that same nervous energy towards connection, I can take the insecurity and the darkness and I can make it into light that quick. And that's why I'm grateful to be sober. I'm grateful to be here talking to you. 
And that's why I know God is real, because that very same energy that put me towards those corners and those blocks put me towards the rooms. And uh, that's all I got. <clears throat> wow. Uh, Benjamin. I can't even tell you how many different things that you said that I identified with, right? But I think the thing that is really powerful for me is that the eloquence in which you are able to express yourself, right? That's the artist in you, right? Is your, your, um, your ability to string beautiful words together. And I guess that's what it's all about, right? In your business. Um, but wow, man. I mean, we come from completely different places, right? And, uh, but the things that you talked about, the, the need for other people's approval, right? For, you know, to be that, like you said, that performing monkey, right? Like, I did that on my own. Nobody pushed me into that. My emptiness and my need for acceptance and love and all those things made me go out and perform my little shtick for older guys so I could get a drink. You know, the older kids in my neighborhood, that kind of thing. If I could make them laugh, if I could make them, if I could get money for them, if, you know, like they, they, would, uh, they would send me home to steal from my family, right? Like you talked about, right? The people that loved us the most, we would victimize them, you know, and um, all just to feel a different way about ourselves. So, um, wow, man. Good for you. Good for you uh, that... You, you know, God has a funny way of getting us to that place, that, that jump-off point, if you will. That little teeny voice that you talked about in your head, that I have these three options, and this last little one is the quietest voice of them all, right? Like, I identify with that. I remember being in prison and having these guys coming in, carrying this amazing message of hope, and then thinking, what a great program this is for them. But it's never going to work for me because I'm not worthy of it, right? If they really knew who I was, I wouldn't be welcome here, right? And, and then I remember hearing that little voice that you heard, that same little voice, right? And it's funny because it, it's our own voice, right, that we hear, right? I think God is putting the words together and stringing them together for us and allowing them to creep into our ear. But I remember walking through this maximum security state prison with 40-foot walls and fences and razor wire, and that thought came to my mind. Maybe this can work for me too, right? And it was a passing thought. It came, it went, right? And instead, what I did was is that I started hustling. I started, I was just trying to get out of prison. I didn't want to get sober. I didn't even attribute the fact that I was in prison to my use and abuse. And so... I just wanted to get out, and I said, if this, if this will do it, if this will get me out, I'll try this. I'll try anything, because I was doing six to nine years, and I didn't want to do nine years. Um, what I'd like to do right now, if, if at all possible, is before you perform another song, we talked about it. We talked about it. You talked about it. We, you know, that you are a child prodigy, right, that you where you had these, these gifts, these talents, and, um, and, and 
we'll get into your love of hip hop and, and how you move in that direction in a minute, but can I get you to play a li- just a little classical? Just something that's very just sort of, you know, just classical, I guess, is the only way I can express it, right? I'm going to play my favorite, uh, the first part, because it's a long piece. I'm going to play, like, you know, a couple minutes. This is uh, Beethoven, C minor. It's also known as Sonata Pathetique. And, uh, okay, and I want to say before you start playing that you will absolutely be the first person to play Beethoven on this show. Thank you. Gotta love it. That's beautiful. Wow. Thank you very much. Little end in there, but that's the first part. I'm positive that none of our guests are gonna know that you improvised. I'm positive of that fact, so don't worry about it. That was beautiful, man. Um, Yeah. So I'm just. uh, I wanna. I wanna say that. um, I wanna thank you for for your willingness, right? In, in your openness about this, right? And it sounds to me clearly that this is not, this is not, this is bigger than you. There's like, I want to be, I want to be sober. I want to be clean. You know, you make an album about it. You, you know, you go back to the treatment center that you were in to be a peer advocate. You, I mean, you're out there on the front lines. You're not doing the bare minimum. It sounds to me like you're more hovering around the, the maximum, right? Doing what's necessary to live a full a full life, man, a life of joy, right? See, that's the thing that when, when I got clean, for me, it was, uh, it took a long, long time for me to do the work on the inside, right? I was really good at doing the work on the outside, right? I always had plenty of gold chains on. I always had a nice car. I, like, I, I went and got stuff, and I continued in that, uh, in that need for other people's opinion of me, right? And, you know, their opinion was, you look good. You look like you're doing all right. Because when I was using, I never had anything, right? From the minute I picked up to, the, to the, that last day in prison when I surrendered, um, I never could hold on to anything of any monetary value. If my girlfriend said, here, wear my, my Irish clatter ring that says you're my boyfriend, I'd sell it within 24 hours, you know, um, because that's just what my addiction did to me. That's the person that it turned me into, right, was that I just, there was never enough. There was never enough for me. And um, <clears throat> it's, it's just so interesting for me to hear 
Um, I guess I, I'm never I'm never at a loss for being um, I don't I don't think surprised is the word because I'm not surprised at all, right? Because I know this thing does not discriminate, right? This thing wants us all in San Francisco in a motel with nothing, right? With crying and it doesn't want us dead. It doesn't want me dead. It wants me to suffer, right? So um, it's just so, it, it's beautiful to hear that voice came to you and that you finally, you know, I'm sure you were still, like you said, you called the rehab, you were getting high. You're getting high, why are you calling the rehab? Because that's what we do, right? We don't, we think, oh, I'm going to do this, but it's probably not going to work because it never worked before, right? But it's, it's funny how God, he motivates us, right? We end up beaten into a state of reasonableness is what I like to call it, right? We are beaten into a state of reasonableness. And, um, man, it's just, it's really, it's really great to get to know you. I feel like I know you now, right? Um, and I really want to just say, again, like, your ability to express yourself and to tell a story is such a gift, man. It's such a gift, you know, because many people are, then we, they don't have that gift, right? Um, you know, I don't have the gift to be quiet. It was like I was holding on to the table while you were speaking because I'm always accused of, hey, why don't you let the guy talk, right? But I, I identify with so much, right? I identify with so much of what you had to say that uh, I kept wanting to jump in, right? And uh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed with a wife that reminds me that it's not all about me, right? Because I have this, this disease that tells me I, I, I ain't much, but I'm all I think about, right? And even in, in, you know, 30 years of recovery, sometimes I can slip right back into that. And I end up in a, and I'm playing uh, conversation jump rope, right? I need to hold on to this table and listen, or I'm going to miss the message because I'm going to be too eager to jump into the conversation and tell you something really great about me. You know, and the greatest thing I did today was ask for help. It was the smartest thing I did. It was the greatest thing I did. And everything good in my life is based on my spiritual condition today, not yesterday and not last week. So, um, Benjamin, thank you so much. If we could, can we get another song from the album? Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much, man. So the first one was Never Let It Go. Yep. I don't think I said what it was. And this one's called Scars. I'm not going to do the whole thing. I'm just going to do the verse from it. And it's about coming to terms with who we are, realizing that our scars can be the most beautiful thing about us, literal and metaphorical. I used to hate all of the scars upon my arms and my face. Used to wish for pure perfection with no mark and no trace of any blemish in my image, cause it's hard to relate to other people acting shallow, cruel, heartless, and fake. My insecurities got stronger and I started to chase after relief and found a feeling that was hard to replace. Left me permanently marked and ways so hard to erase. Then now remind me how I hurt myself and tried to escape. It's hard for me to keep it real, but I'ma keep it 100. There's a reason why I wear the long sleeves in the summer. There's a reason why I edit my posts and my pictures and change the way I look with filters with control and precision. But now I'm walking out the shadows with an honest admission. My complexion isn't perfect in its honest condition. And I got marks upon my body that were caused from addiction. 
Cause ain't nobody perfect, we all got our flaws and we're different And there's some people who ain't really got no scars in their skin But they'll relate to this, cause everyone is scarred from within And some obsess about their weight, till they're awfully thin Preoccupied with what some other people possibly think And some are scarred from hella trauma they didn't deserve So they take out all their hatred and resentment with words Or acting different cause they're so afraid to get themselves hurt That every possible attempt to real affection is curved Rather live an ugly truth than live a beautiful lie Cause the truth is that my scars are really stupid to hide Cause if somebody doesn't see the inner beauty inside It's cause they're caught up in illusion so the truth gets denied Used to always be obsessed by what to do with my scars but truth be told, my imperfection is my most beautiful part And I'm just proud that there's a part of me that sets me apart Reminding me how far I've managed to progress from the start Wow Wow, 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 wow So awesome, bro What a gift, what a, what a real, real blessing To do that, I watch, you know, I have musical people in my family, you know, and uh, I don't know, when I watch what you do, the gifts that you have, right, um, it's a just, it's a blessing, it's a joy, and it just really lends itself to when we talk about, you know, people from all walks of life, right, from all walks of life, this thing does not discriminate, right, that this thing can destroy any family from anywhere, right, and it can rob anyone of their dreams, right? Um, you are an example of that anyone, right? Because your journey's a little different than most, right? I mean, I think the ugliness is very similar to all of us, right? It's just the other stuff, you know, that's just a little different. And um, wow, man, it's, it's really such a blessing to, uh, to have you here, to get to know you a little bit. Can you tell me a little bit about what you're into now, what's happening with you, what's happening with your life, with your career. I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Well, first of all, the pleasure is mine being here. And uh, I just wanted to say that, first of all, I applaud the fact that you're doing a platform like this, especially in the time of COVID, uh, where so many people are cut off from uh, you know, meetings and other resources. Uh, just the ability to reach out through pe for people. I know for me specifically, Zoom meetings during this pandemic, huh, incredible meeting people I never thought I'd meet. And that goes for podcasts too. That goes for any kind of, you know, uh, recovery outreach resources, which this really is. So thank you for uh, making me a part of this. And um, what we're doing now is we're basically uh, trying to figure out ways that we can continue to spread a message of recovery through music and through writing. Through working with a Dr. Joshua Sherman here at Old Mill Road Media and Old Mill Road Recording, uh, it's a studio and it's a media company up here in Vermont. And uh, I'm the artist in residence here. We're working on a couple projects. Uh, my project is out and we're currently promoting it. Uh, we did submit it for Grammy uh, consideration in several categories. And, you know, we're, it, was, it was interesting because we didn't really know where to submit it. Because at the same, you know, it's a, it's a hip hop album and I have a hip hop background. I did hip hop music for years before I uh, melded the piano together with it. Uh, but it's really something that hasn't been done before, really. But I would, I would classify it as a hip hop project, but it's also acoustic, you know. And... Um, so it was interesting to figure that out. Um, and it's been interesting kind of putting together different genres. And uh, there's a lot of classical in this and there's a lot of old school hip hop. 
Uh, big L, as I said, is a big influence of mine. But there's also a couple tracks on this album that have a little bit more of a new school hip hop influence. Only One Left is kind of like my tribute to a Roddy Rich, you know, uh, YNW Melly, those kind of melodic kind of auto-tune trap guys. Because I, I like to consider myself like a lyricist of the old school school influenced by that. Because I just love that 90s New York tradition, that old school flavor. I really love that stuff. But, um, you know, for the next album that we're working on, um, we're going to take it in a more kind of folky direction with hip hop and with classical. Because being out here in Vermont, I mean, come on, it's beautiful out here. You got to love it. And uh, my dad used to play, you know, Bob Dylan, Guthrie stuff when I was growing up. And every time I drive up here, I, there's a wonderful concept I love called synesthesia which is the melding of the senses, you know, a hearing color, seeing sound. And so I like to think that the visuals and the sounds and the smells and the touch, the tactile sensations of everywhere you go, especially when you're in recovery or just sober to begin with, but especially in recovery, when your senses reawaken, there's a wonderful thing that can happen. When you just, no matter where you are, you get better acclimated and you can just really enjoy it. So I'm trying to really encapsulate what's going on here and the second album is also going to talk about, um, so my producer and I, we want to talk about recovery, but we also want to make it clear that recovery isn't just about substances for me. It's about the underlying condition underneath. And I think that's a real misconception is that people don't understand that for many people, there are often traumatic experiences that can exacerbate it. So what I want to talk about is, and everyone's different. And I had an incredible amount of privilege growing up. But even still, there were some moments where there was emotional turmoil that I felt partially because of what was within me and partially because of what was around me and the outside pressures that I couldn't confide in anyone. And so I'm kind of using the music as a canvas to talk about that and talk about how through recovery, I haven't just been able to come to terms with my substance use and all those patterns. I've also been able to come to terms with, uh, you know, some stuff with, uh, with my friends and my family and my personal emotional development that I had to arrest and stop that I solved with drugs. And I saw it with alcohol. And so now my emotions coming back to life. And especially during, you know, the Corona pandemic, I had such incredible outreach from my network up here, my sobriety network, my family, and, um, you know, the people I work with. It's wonderful. But um, I still felt alone. But music helped me reach out. It was a journal for me. So I really want to talk about how, you know, recovery doesn't just mean putting down the pipe, the bottle, you know, the rig, whatever it is. It's about reaching out and having that connection. But in order to have that connection for me, I have to address in a kind of inventory fashion where I come from, the nature of my past relationships and my past emotional family dynamics. And I kind of am using music as a cathartic medium for that for me. And I hope to connect with people. But one last point I want to make, because I'm guilty of talking when, you know, I got I to gotta be quiet too. But, um, you know, I have music and I have words and I write a weekly column called Clean for a local publication here, which I'm, I'm really excited about because it's been allowed me to tell my stories in a non-musical way. But whether it's writing or whether it's music or whether it's visual art, one of the best things I've seen are there are some, and I don't offhand know the names of the programs, but around the country, there have just been some really incredible recovery-oriented vocational job training programs that I've seen. And I really want to get involved with the promotion and advocacy for that because not everyone can be an artist. Not everyone can be a pianist. Not everyone can, you know, speak or uh, speak publicly or, or write. But I like to think everyone has a gift and everyone has a way to make a positive impact on the world. And there are so many great jobs through a chosen path or trade 
that people who maybe didn't come from, you know, a storied pastor um, or had a lot of access to education, there are these wonderful things, these live-in sobriety programs, they're teaching kids how to not just do art, but do trades, work with their hands and rediscover their passion in that connection. And so I'm really interested in finding ways to advocate for jobs for addicts, recovery housing for addicts, and use the music and the platform as a way to really end the stigma and raise awareness that addiction doesn't just stop at rehab and in order to continue uh, recovery and really nurture recovery, the whole community has to be involved. And that starts with policy, that starts with uh, you know job programs, and that starts with housing programs. So that's that's just my little plug. Yeah. For, uh, so yeah. let me ask you: Are you are you involved up there in Vermont at all with uh, with the politics of it all? Like, do you know the governor? Do you know the mayor of your town? Are you involved in some of that sort of leading that policy direction? I've had some really awesome conversations with both local medical workers and people on a statewide basis. Um, it's been great. Um, you know, it's interesting. Policy is such that people um, are kind of uh, sometimes hesitant, but that's changing. And it's really great to see people who are willing to listen to addicts. I got to take you down the road. I got to take you down the road to New Hampshire and introduce you to the governor there, Chris Anunu, right? who has done some unbelievable things, right, to help those people in search of recovery, either those actively in recovery or still in search of recovery, right? He's done some amazing things, and he just won, a, he just won his office again in a landslide, right? But that is a community that has been decimated by the opioid epidemic, and this guy jumped out in front and said, hey, you know, and he comes from, I think, maybe a, a sort of a similar background as you in terms of, you know, access. And um, he comes from, you know, a political dynasty, if you will, right? And you come from a musical dynasty, right? And so um, he's used his platform to really make a difference in the lives of his, the New Hampshire's. I think that's what they're called, right? And, and, and he knows that families from all walks of life have, have suffered this, this devastation and have lost their loved ones to this. And so he's done some amazing things. And I'd be happy to make that connection with you, you and him, because I think you guys would really, really hit it off. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. I think that we need to be looking at this thing in a much broader sense than just helping somebody get clean. Cause you're right. You get clean and then you're left with something, right? If you're just physically clean, now you're left with the problem and no solution. Right. And cause drugs and alcohol were my solution. I was the problem, right? The way my mind worked was the problem and alcohol and drugs made me feel different about it made my mind settle. It made me look at people differently and it made me, think that people looked at me differently, right? And, um, and so, but it did what it does. And what it does is it, it turns on you, right? It's, it, it's your medicine, and, and then it goes to, it becomes the thing that everybody else in the world sees it's as the thing that's tearing you apart, and we as addicts see it as the one thing holding us together. And that's the sort of thing that that's, I think, when we can get, over that hump, when people can understand that, 
maybe this uh, their minds will expand into understanding addiction just a little bit better, right? We don't see it as the thing that's tearing us apart, man. It's the glue holding me together. I can't get, I can't face the world without it. Um, Benjamin, it, it's it's an honor. It really is. Just um, again, your openness, your willingness to share your story, and and the eloquence in which you did that, right? And I don't want to blow smoke up your skirt, but it's a blessing. You're blessed with with the gift of words, and um, and I appreciate it. And so I thank you. And, um, and I'm excited for my audience to get to know you. And I'm excited for what God has uh, in store for us together. Because I am, you know, my mind, I drink a lot of coffee, right? And my mind is constantly thinking about more ways to reach young people. Because the answer lies with them. It doesn't lie with some old guy telling them what to do, Right. The answers lie with them. We, we just need to try to inspire them a little bit, right, and get them to think about, you know, living uh, life in a healthier way and making healthier choices for themselves. And so I, I just I have all these thoughts about putting you in front of these, these people, these young people, and uh, so I'm excited about that. So I thank you, um, and, uh, and you'll be in my prayers, man. I'm, I'm excited to, uh, and I now, so my best friend lives in Vermont. He has a, he has a campground up there across from uh, a, a very sort of famous place for people like us, right? And he's got a place right across the street, and he's been trying to get me to go up there. And I'm like, dude, it's like four hours. <laughs> I got to drive all the way up there into the middle of nowhere, and I don't like the cold. I live in South Florida now. Grew up in Boston, but I do not like the cold. And so uh, you now have given me that extra incentive that I needed to take the ride, right, so that we can sit together and, uh, and maybe break a little bread and talk about how we can maybe work together in, in some capacity to reach young people and to reach families and to, uh, and to maybe give them a little bit more hope. So thank you, my friend. Thank you. Looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, thanks. Hey guys, Jim Wahlberg here from The Bottom Line. Listen, I just want to remind you, please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube page at Wall Street Productions. And I also want to remind you, push that little bell. Just push it, man. It takes one second. Then that will notify you when anything's going on with the bottom line.